and continue on reading through that book. But in the scene that's depicted in Revelation chapter 4, we find the Lord sitting upon his throne in heaven. And the various ones that are mentioned there, surrounding him, exalting him. This scene simply says that God sits on his throne in the spiritual center of the universe. And his universe includes everything, does it not? The finite world as well as infinity. And that God rules and that he directs the affairs of men, notice, in the interest of his people. All the things that are happening are under God's control. And that which is guiding him are the interest of his people. Nothing about the unbelievers, necessarily. And I think this should be one of the most comforting passages that we can find in the Bible. Now, having said that, that introduces us to Romans 8.28. For we know that to them who love God, all things work together for good, even unto them that are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good to them who love God. We know we're living in uncertain times. We're living in a world of great changes. We listen to the news, the news broadcasts what's going to happen or what's happened, and we don't know what's going to happen next. Where it's going to happen, to whom it's going to happen, none can predict what's going to happen next in the next 24 hours in this world, in this nation. And I think we can just point to Florida and get an idea about that. Now, I don't stay up to listen to Jay Leno or uh, David Letterman, but uh, the other night on the evening news, they told one or two of their jokes about the election. And Jay Leno said he had a horrible nightmare. This was about the 8th, the next day after the election. Had a horrible nightmare. He said there were aliens from outer space landed near him, and they came up to him and they said, Take us to your leader. He said, I didn't know who my leader was. Well, that was his point of view. But none of us can say with accuracy what the rest of this day may bring, whether it's going to bring us pleasure or pain, laughter and joy or tears, none of us knows. And so in this life, or in this sense, life is very uncertain. We know as studying the life of the Apostle Paul that Paul lived in a very uncertain day. He did not know what was going to happen from hour to hour. But there are a few solid certainties upon which Paul leaned and upon which you and I can lean. And one of these is this passage in Romans 8, 28. We know that to them who love God, all things work together for good. Even unto them that are called according to his purpose. This was one of the bracing certainties that gave Paul a 
serenity and a peace of heart that few men have ever known in this, in this old world. So we'd like to look at this verse a little bit closer. But first, we want to notice some things that Paul did not say in Romans 8 and 28. Paul did not say that everything that happened would be good. We know from our own observations and our own experience in life, that's not so. Sin is not good. So that's not included. Sin is so prevalent in the world. In fact, at this very hour, there are hearts being broken by sins. Health being ruined by sin. If we had all of the tears being shed today in all the world because of sin, they would overflow the Mississippi River. There are hearts that are breaking. Tears being shed over all the world. Some of them in Peach County. Some in Byron. Some maybe even right here in this room at this moment. And this verse does not say that every good thing brings about a good result. Now that might have sounded logical if it had been so, but every good thing does not bring a good result. Let me give you some examples. Good health. We'd say it's good to have good health. Don't we pray for it? Do we not want it? But how often have we seen someone in good health live a life of dissipation? Live a life of careless ease and go to an early grave, die before someone with ill health. Carlisle, the, uh, the Scottish writer, said it this way. He said that the only way to live a long life is to develop an incurable illness while in your youth. Then you'll learn to take care of yourself. Well, he might have a point there. So sometimes good health may not bring about or have a good result. Somebody who's healthy and robust may abuse their body in dissipation. Overeating, overworking, smoking, drinking, whatever. And thus it will not have a good result. Here's another example. Physical beauty. We put a question mark here in our, our own mind whether it is a good thing or not. Now, I know that with young people, it means a great deal. But physical beauty may not bring a good result. Our North and another preacher were sitting in a cafeteria at a table, and across from them was a very beautiful young lady. And Brother North knew her well. He called her by, his, by her first name. And he said, you're very pretty. And if you use that beauty for the Lord, it can be a wonderful asset. But if you don't 
it will be a terrible detriment. Many a young woman could have made her way in life better had she been the ugly duckling of the family rather than the poetry in motion. So what I'm saying is that physical beauty may not be a blessing. It can be. But many times it brings a lot of trials and temptations and tribulations, heartaches and heartbreaks. So what we're saying is that every good thing does not necessarily bring about a good result. One more example. Success in business or any, any other endeavor. We think it's good for a person to be successful, but not if it cost him his soul. It isn't. Most of us have observed uh, someone who's been, a, who's been successful in business and then has become bankrupt in their soul. How often has the story been told a member of the church and faithful to the Lord has a talent for making money and gets involved in the affairs of the world and the first thing you know he is forsaking our Wednesday night meetings and then he begins to forsake the Bible class on Sunday morning and then the Sunday evening assembly and finally the morning assembly and usually it happens in that order and then before you know it he's gone back into the world so Paul did not say that every good thing brings a good result. But what does Paul say? What does he mean in Romans 8 and 28? Well, with the exceptions just noticed, Paul says that all things work together for good. All things? Does that mean all things? And yes, we, say, we think it does. It means all things. The good and the bad work together for good. The sunshine and the shadows work together for good. Poverty and wealth work together for good. Pleasure and pain work together for good. But when Paul says all things, does he mean all things work together for good for all people? And the answer is no. He says, we know that to them who love the Lord, all things work together for good, even to them who are called according to his purpose. But those who are called according to his purpose are those who have obeyed the gospel. They're called to the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. They're the ones who love the Lord. What did Jesus say in John 14? Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So Paul is talking about those who keep the Lord's commandments. Not unbelievers. He's not talking about the lukewarm or the indifferent. It's those who trust God and who follow God, who believe in, who are obedient to him in, in all things. Now the Bible emphasizes that God is no respecter of persons. When it comes to salvation, 
God is no respecter of persons. God requires everybody from every nation or whatever to obey the same commands. He's no respecter in that regard. And when it comes to the judgment, we'll all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in our body, whether it be good or bad. No exceptions. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to the last judgment. Now, is this statement true or is it not true? Is this something that will work anywhere, anytime, under any condition? And we affirm, yes, it will. It's stating a universal truth, just like the law of gravity or the law of sowing and reaping. If this principle does not work somewhere, sometime, under some condition, then it may not work under a condition where I want it to. And I wouldn't have any faith in it. But it works all times, all places, under any kind of condition. We know that Paul did not lead a sheltered life. And he's the one that makes the statement. According to 2 Corinthians 11, he lists a number of things that he had suffered up to the time he was writing 2 Corinthians and his life was not yet over, nor his persecution from unbelievers. And he says that he had been shipwrecked at least four times. He had received 39 stripes on five different occasions. Now I can appreciate four or five stripes, maybe nine or ten, but 39 each time. He had been beaten with rods on three different occasions. He was in the perils of hunger, in the perils of desert, in the perils of false brethren. That's the way Paul lived as a Christian, an apostle. Think about this. Paul had probably seen the inside of more jails than any Roman outlaw. And yet, He's the one who says, all things work together for good to them who love the Lord. Anywhere, anytime, any condition. Well, let's ask this question. Why did God let these things happen to Paul? Well, the answer is for the same reason he lets them happen to you and me. It was Norman Vincent Peale we put it this way, adversity is the abrasive that sharpens the cutting edge of courage. I'll say that again. Adversity, those things that are not pleasant to us, adversity is the abrasive that sharpens the cutting edge of courage. Now think about this. If we were sheltered and pampered all the time and God coddled his saints and kept everything away from us that was unpleasant then we would become soft and flabby morally mentally physically and spiritually so God lets these things come our way and they are the abrasive that sharpens the cutting edge of courage gives us the courage to stand on our own two feet with faith in God 
and look life right square in the eye and say, come what may, all things work together for good. So what good is this truth that we're discussing? Well, for one thing, for the one who loves God, who trusts God, it helps him to face life squarely. He doesn't pull the sheet over his head. He doesn't pretend the problems aren't there and hopes that they'll go away. He knows they are real and he does not try to hide them. Another thing. We learn that the man who is on God's side has the whole universe, that's God's universe, on his side. Yes, he does. There are two great forces in the world. Forces of good with God behind it and forces of evil with Satan behind it. Let me read just a few verses. This is in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 11. Be sober, be watchful, that is, be level-headed and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom withstand steadfast in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings are accomplished in your brethren who are in the world, and the God of all grace, who called you unto his eternal glory in Christ, after that ye have suffered a little while, shall himself perfect, establish, strengthen you. To him be the glory, or to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God has placed some limitations and restrictions on Satan. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, there hath no temptation taken you but such as man can bear. For God is faithful, who will not suffer, that is, will not allow you to be tempted above that which ye are able, but will with the temptation make also the way of escape, that ye may be able to endure it. But Satan still has great destructive power, but 1 John 4 and 4 tells us that God's power is much greater than Satan's. So those who love God have greater strength, spiritual strength, deep strength and abiding strength that those who serve Satan do not have. The ones on God's side have the morning star working on their side to guide them on their course. God operates the universe this way. And this is the reason why we uh, read Revelation, or had Revelation 4 read for us in the beginning. God sits on his throne. He is awake. He never slumbers, never sleeps. He has knowledge of all things that go on. He holds the whole universe in the palm of his hand. He rules and he directs in the interest of his people. And this should be a great blessing to his children. And it's true. 
This is the passage of scripture which gives us the courage to say, come with me. God and I can lick it. God and I are working together and not at cross purposes one from the other. Take a student in school who tries to get an education without working at it, tries to take shortcuts, he rots down scholastically. Take someone in the moral realm. He tries to take shortcuts and he rots down morally. And the same is true physically and spiritually. So we cannot be at cross purposes with God for this to work in our lives. We must do his will and love his way. This is a passage of scripture that turns our losses into gains and our gains into greater gains. And here's another part. <clears throat> we learn that we must not become victims of our circumstances. That's one of the great goods that comes out of this truth. We need not become victims of our circumstances, regardless of what happens to us. How many people are there who whimper about their circumstances. I mean, look at my poor, racked body. I mean, look at my depleted bank account. Look at the way my children have turned out. Look at the way, and on and on and on and on it goes. Now, when we're guilty of this, we don't have much faith in God. We don't have to be victims of circumstances, we can make our circumstances work for us. We've got God on our side. Let me give you a true illustration. This happened a few years ago. A young man and his lovely wife and their two little daughters were very devoted to God, attended all the services of the church. They were active. And his wife was stricken with a grave, a grave illness. Medical bills mounted. They had to sell their house to pay for them. And after a long and lingering illness, his wife died. He had to sell his car to pay for the funeral expenses. And he was in his early 30s. A few weeks later, one Lord's Day morning, he'd gotten the two little girls up, had fed and dressed them, had walked into the church building holding each of them by their little hand, and someone said to him, you know, it's just too bad that God would let something like this happen to a fellow like you. And he was... I'm sure trying to be sympathetic. But you know what the man answered? He said, as I look back over my life, I see that God has made no mistakes. How many mistakes has God made in your life? My life. 
Here's another example. A gospel preacher was conducting a gospel meeting in a mission in South Texas uh, in the area where Hurricane Carla had gone through and had caused a lot of damage there. And his sermon that morning was based upon this passage we're looking at, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. Well, after the service was over, a young sister in Christ, a school teacher, came up to him and he said, Now how on earth could there be anything good in what Hurricane Carla did to us down here? I mean, she put it right to him, didn't she? Well, he said it was a hard question for him to answer. He didn't live there. He hadn't suffered any loss. But he was grateful when a brother nearby who heard the question came to his rescue. He said, let me answer that. He said, we lost everything we had in Hurricane Carla. My wife, family, and I. But even though it took away all of our material possessions, it enriched us spiritually. And we're closer to God than we ever were. And we thank God over and over again for taking our material blessings away. There was another family, same, same gospel meeting, same congregation, who had suffered much loss in that same hurricane. This family lived 10 miles from the Gulf land where the hurricane struck. They took the preacher home with them. They showed him the place inside their house on the wall five and a half feet high where the water had covered their rooms. Five and a half, that's about my height. And when the couple had been able to return to their home five days after the storm, there was still a foot and a half of water and mud and filth. Now, how would you like to go home to your home like that? But they went to work, and after a lot of hard work, it looked nice, freshly painted and decorated. The preacher tried to sympathize with them. The man said, don't sympathize with us. My wife and I were getting too wrapped up in material things that we're just glad the storm came, and now... We have the house for sale. And we're going to a mission field and support ourselves and do something more important than accumulate and lay up treasures here upon this earth. All things work together for good to them who love the Lord. Two ships, sailing ships, out on the sea, one sailing east, and one sailing west with the same wind that blows. Now what's the difference? They've got the same set of circumstances yet one is going one way and the other is going another way. The opposite way. The Egyptians were the first ones in history to master the art of sailing into the wind. A poet has expressed it this way. One ship drives east, another drives west. 
with the self same wind that blows. Tis the set of the sail and not the gale that determines the way it goes. And then he likens it to our lives. And he says, like the winds of the sea are the ways of fate. As we voyage along through life, tis the set of the soul that decides its goal and not the calm nor the strife. All things work together for good. Let me in summary mention briefly. Though all things include afflictions, they work together for our good. They help take our affections away from this world. And what did John say in 1 John 2 and 15? Love not the world, and neither the things that are in the world. Afflictions help us obey that. They teach us the truth about our frail, transitory, and dying condition. What did Peter say in 1 Peter 1, 24? He, he says about the flesh. He says all flesh is like grass and like the flowers. And what happens to them? All flesh is as grass, and all the glory thereof as the flower of grass, the grass wither, and the flower falleth. But the word of God abideth forever. Afflictions lead us to look to God for support and to look to heaven for a final home. They produce a subdued, well, they should produce a subdued spirit, a humble temper, a patient, tender, and kind disposition. And certainly this has been the experience of saints through the ages. And at the end of life, they've been able to say it was good to be afflicted. Let me read from Psalm 119. Verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I observed thy word. What was the difference? Affliction. Verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. All chastening. It seemeth for the present to be not joyous but grievous. Yet afterward, afterward, it, that is chastening, yieldeth peaceable fruit unto them that have been exercised thereby, even the fruit of righteousness, 